What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tutorial Linux podcast. Um, this is going to be a, a solo adventure today, and I wanted to talk about a few different things. Keep it kind of short. First, uh, editors, the latest step in my editor journey, and uh, how I like using NeoVim so far. Been using it for a few months now. It's my first time, like, truly fully committed to the full Vim experience. And, uh, you know, is the hype true? Like, is it the end-all be-all? Uh, how does it compare to the other editors I've used over the last 15 years? And most of all, is it worth sinking huge amounts of time into? Because you will sink time into it. Second, I want to cover uh, a new programming language uh, I'm learning, which is Elixir. As many of you know, I've programmed in Python before. I've done some Ruby stuff, various other languages. Currently, I'm a Go developer at HashiCorp. I've done a lot of different things and in, in kind of a lot of different contexts from web programming to um, you know cloud infrastructure and SRE and automation work and all kinds of stuff. How do I like Elixir? I'm going to talk about what it's like to switch to a language, especially knowing many other languages already, how it's different, why I think it's interesting, and maybe most interestingly to a lot of people here, what my approach has been to learn Elixir uh, quickly and as efficiently as I can while making a couple of mistakes that I'll tell you about. Finally, I'm going to float an idea past you. Please, you know, ping me on the YouTube channel or with an email to dave at tutoriallinux.com. That's one L. I'm thinking of doing a new series of YouTube videos and possibly paid courses that are small programming projects, and I'd love to hear your ideas for what you want to see. So without further ado, let us jump in. Uh, catchy theme music plays here and swoosh sound effect. What's going on, everyone? Uh, maybe the most clickbaity part of this, but I hopefully this will be interesting to you. So I've used a ton of different editors in my life. Um, obviously, I started with, you know, early kind of IDEs and probably text edit or something like that, kind of like plain text editors, moved to, I think, something like Idle when I was working on, I don't know, early Android projects and stuff like that had settled kind of as a professional on Sublime Text for a long time. Before, around that time, probably 10 years ago, was a huge uh, Emacs aficionado. And for those of you that don't know Emacs, uh, you know, the joke is it's it's an operating system masquerading as a, you know, great operating system, <laughs> okay text editor. And that is somewhat true, but it is sort of like a an editor uh, that you can bolts pretty much anything onto that you want. And uh, so like Emacs, definitely used it for years, especially when I was programming in Clojure. I remember the, the kind of premium Clojure environment at the time, this is like 2012, 2013, was uh, Emacs and Slime and all of those kind of add-ons. After that, um, you know, back to Sublime Text for a bunch of Python projects and Go for years. Um, I was also, because I was a I hate saying this, DevOps engineer. So like infrastructure, um, you know, some code. Sublime Text was great because I could use, it was blazing fast, especially on giant generated files and had all these language plugins for Terraform, for, you know, YAML, for whatever flavor of the, of the build pipeline I was working on that day. From there, I think along with everybody else on the planet, I moved to VS Code and was relatively happy with it. And about three months, four months ago, I... I was just like frustrated with something and enabled Vim mode. There's a Vim plugin for it. 
And I just wasn't 100%. I was happy with like Vim shortcuts, um, or I guess the Vim key mapping, but kind of unhappy with the incomplete, I felt, implementation. Uh, I think due to maybe some limitations, not with the plugin so much as just like, it's not Vim. And I saw a coworker of mine who's just a phenomenal developer start using kind of make the leap to NeoVim just as I was starting to look at NeoVim and like what what's Vim like oh like NeoVim's big now and so I jumped into NeoVim with the uh, kickstart let me google that yeah so it's called kickstart.nvim and so this is TJ DeVries uh, kind of starter config there's a lot of fairly heavy starter configs out there I have no experience using them you may have some opinion on heavy starter configs. I'm not going to get into that. But there's things like Lazy NVim or uh, NVChad that are sort of like a bunch of pre-selected packages and configs. And I think that can be very useful for people who are just getting started and just want something that is like already set up. In retrospect, I kind of wish that I maybe had gone with something like that just to start getting used to NeoVim with a kind of like an, an opinionated setup of NeoVim that got me productive immediately. The way that I did it was a sort of uh, halfway approach, halfway between building my entire config from scratch myself in like Lua and I don't know, VimScript and, and stuff, um, which I think would have gone poorly. I don't think I would have fully adopted adopted this. Kickstart.nvim, I'll leave a GitHub link somewhere here, uh, is a nice, very minimal uh, config that gives you kind of like basic IDE features for very few lines of config and in a very well-documented and kind of open to further configuration uh, kind of way. It's fairly unopinionated, just gives you some some tools to start with. And that's like, you know, a few packages that for like a theme to make your code not look like garbage. And, you know, it's like a color theme, um, some basic plugins. I think, does it come with Git? Probably a couple of like super popular language um, servers. And in fact, the, the kind of, language server plugin, a package manager, that kind of stuff. So like these core things that it doesn't even make sense to, to configure yourself until you really know what you're doing. It comes with all that. I thought that was a really nice jumping off point. It made adoption a lot easier. Yes, I still spent, you know, human weeks of time uh, get tweaking my config and playing around with plugins, adding them one by one, trying them, removing them. And I think I ended up with something that's just extremely comfortable and fast for me to use. I would say I am probably faster than I ever was in VS Code. There are at this point few to no features that I actually miss. Um, and the ones that I am missing in any way are things that I know that given a little bit of time I can have in NeoVim. I just, they, they're just not important enough for me to go out of my way right now to do that. So, and, and Conversely, there's a ton of stuff I can do in NeoVim, or the speed at which I can accomplish things in NeoVim is ridiculous. I know that in programming, I think editing speed itself is overhyped. Like editing, moving text around quickly is is a way to show off with Vim key bindings and that kind of thing. And I think that's cool. And like, trust me, I enjoy when I feel like I'm in the groove and I'm like doing things the Vim way and editing text quickly. But uh, more than that, I think. It, uh, NeoVim has been great for being able to configure it for how I like to write code. Um, like I don't even use, I think I turned off the Neo tree. So like the, the like tree view of the code base, I just turned it off because I keep that stuff in my brain all the time. And it's kind of distracting when it's there. And I never noticed that until I didn't have it. And 
I can grep for things, you know, with three keystrokes, I'm grepping for uh, patterns in the code base or with three keystrokes, I'm looking for a file. Um, and, you know, after you've worked on a project for 10 minutes, you know what's in that file structure, you know how that works. Um, I'm using a very simple file browser plugin called Oil, uh, which kind of lets you edit um, directories and files just like any other Vim buffer, basically as text, and it goes and does like file systems operations in the background, really slick. Haven't needed anything more heavyweight than that. You know, your your mileage may vary. So I think there has definitely, I definitely paid a productivity price for about a month. Like I was just slower and I was more frustrated all the time, but that's what got me to learn. Um, I used an amazing book whose name I will get you now. The book is Practical Vim. It's phenomenal. Uh, just a really, really good book. It's the second edition of Practical Vim. Um, I made it like a quarter of the, I'm like a quarter of the way through that thing. And I've, I'm already more productive than I ever was in, an, in any other editor. I shudder to think what might happen if I actually complete this book. But it teaches you kind of like how to think in Vim and how to be really, really fast and efficient. Um, you know, kind of these these building blocks of how to think. You know, like an operator plus a motion is an action, one action that you're going to do in Vim. And then repeating actions and patterns and, you know, recording and macros and stuff like that. Amazing stuff. Highly recommend it. And um, I think for me, the effort invested has been absolutely worth it have I made back those three uncomfortable first weeks? I don't know, but there's something that I can't quite express, which is like, it feels like there's nothing in between me and what I'm trying to do in the code base 99% of the time. And when I go back and use VS code, it's not just like, oh, my habits are a little different now. It's like, I notice how kind of in the way the editors, and it's like, oh, I'm in this, this file and I need this shortcut to get to where I'm going and then a find inside there and then I need to scroll around possibly. And I'm just like, this is so corny, but like I'm noticing that it's like kind of annoying for my brain to wait for my hand to go to the mouse, wiggle around, find a thing, click. It sounds ridiculous before you've used Vim. You're like, that cannot possibly take enough time to be worth the giant learning curve of Vim. But weirdly in retrospect, and I don't think I'm just telling myself this to make up for the time I've spent on this, I think it is. So if you've ever considered learning, Vim, here's kind of, <laughs> if you ask me for advice as like a slightly more junior engineer, here's what I would say. You know, if you're in the middle of working on a product and like the deadline is like breathing down your neck, now's probably not the time to switch to NeoVim or any form of Vim. However, if you want to kind of invest in uh, a tool that might really pay off over time, uh, just in terms of like efficiency, lack of frustration, and kind of a nice smooth editing coding process, I think... Learning Vim key bindings is the, the first step and just about any editor will let you use key uh, Vim key bindings inside of it. So like that's where I would start. And that's the biggest and most annoying learning curve. And when you've done that, the cool thing that it unlocks is not only more efficient text editing, but it allows you to get around on the command line pretty much anywhere on any Unix like system for sure. So like you'll be faster on OS X. You'll be able to log into a server that doesn't have a graphical user interface installed and start editing config files and other stuff. It just unlocks a bunch of other tech, I don't know, like environments to you because like Vim and Vim key bindings are everywhere. Uh, and especially when you're in environments where there's no mouse, like 
I don't know, it's 4 a.m. and you're troubleshooting a, a, an issue in prod, like at your startup, like, guess what key bindings you have available to you and you might be limited to. It's like, yeah, like, there's only VI is installed, you know, not even Vim on, a, on this production environment or whatever. It's like, well, that's what you're using. So hope you're not, like, using the arrow keys. Um, again, I'm not saying, like, I'm not religious about this, but I do feel objectively that the effort... You know, the Vim aficionados probably undersell the effort required to switch. But the anti-Vim people, I think, oversell how much effort it actually is and underestimate how large the payoff is, like, over the course of your career. So I'd use Vim key bindings for a little while. Just learn them. Just become comfortable. You won't forget them once you learn them. That's a weird thing about them. They're pretty sticky in your brain, at least in my brain. And then you'll be more effective everywhere. And then if you actually want to switch to, like, Vim the editor or NeoVim or any of those things, you then have the option to do that with very with less friction than if you were learning everything at once. That is my, I would call it, you know, 10 minute spiel about um, editors, my NeoVim experience so far. And uh, if you've got opinions or comments on this, definitely leave them wherever you can for this podcast. Um, and if there's nowhere to leave them, then just like come to my YouTube channel, watch a video and leave angry Vim pro or anti Vim comments below. Because the one thing I know is that in trying to be balanced about text editors, I'm going to piss off absolutely everyone and make absolutely no one happy with my opinion. But I hope that's useful to someone. Next, we're going to talk about a new programming language that I'm trying out, namely Elixir. Elixir uh, is a really interesting functional programming language built on Erlang and OTP. Uh, and I, it's, it's like, I'm going to start this like everyone talking about Elixir, which is it's hard to talk about Elixir without mentioning that like what Erlang is. Erlang was created by Ericsson in the 80s for telephone networks. And it it's a weird language because it's every language is more than just a language. It's more than just the syntax of the language and that, you know, like the machine code that it outputs. I don't know. Every language becomes an environment. And when you're working with like Java, you're not just working with Java, the language you're working with, like Maven, you're working with all these other tools, right? And some languages just have really good environments. Conversely, some some languages ha are great languages with terrible environments. Python, I think, is one of those. Like, Python's an incredible language for beginners to learn, and then you realize all the tooling you need to, like, make sure people are running the same code on the same version of Python in the same kind of environment with all the dependencies they need the same. Um, that part gets really ugly. So you can have great languages that have absolutely brutal environments to work in. It's just one more consideration when you're working with a language. The other consideration, part of the environment, is like what libraries are available. You know, Python's amazing at that again, so like often Python's just the best thing to use for your thing. Lately I've been working in Go. Go is, um, I would say, not my favorite language. It is a perfectly serviceable language, and it's, the longer I use it, the, the more I actually see what it is doing, and I like it. Um, it's extremely minimal. It's an extraordinarily minimal language. Um, and I would say it's the most minimal thing in most cases for what it is trying to do, which is being a good, efficient, fast, memory safe language that has safe concurrency options as like a primary thing that it gives you. So like concurrency and parallelism. It's very good at that. It's not a super expressive language. I've got all kinds of like gripes, little gripes with the language. Yes, they've added generics, certain things have been fixed, but like the the language is fine and the environment, 
I would say is great. The tooling is excellent from the fact that like GoFumpt is a thing for formatting. Like there is one format that is acceptable for Go code and it generally you auto format to that. And that is just like everyone just deals with it instead of having formatting wars with each other uh, at a company. So many of the tooling has been, is really like well thought through, efficient, fast, um, nice to use. It's a good language. From a packages kind of environment perspective, I think it's fine. You can you can find a package for anything. I think the Go ethos in general is sort of like, you can just write your own simple like thing. So like if you're coming from Python, you may expect like the language or the, the, the core libraries, you know, batteries included to do a little more than they do in Go. Now Go has good reasons for that. I think Go doesn't want to make choices for you that have real performance implications. And any 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 time where you may ha end up with some inefficient code potentially, Go doesn't make that choice for you. Like you have to make that choice yourself. Like, oh, this is going to be linear time. O of n, we're going to go through every element and do a thing. Chances are you're going to be doing that yourself in a little for loop. And that's not going to be like built into uh, to Go. There's a bunch of examples like that. I don't want to dwell too much on Go. Trying out Elixir has been a really interesting uh, experience, mainly because the language is, I have high hopes for this language. The language itself is fairly exquisite. Um, it is a joy to use. It is expressive. It is very much a functional language, but not, not, you know, it's not the 13 year old rebel, like edgelord functional language. That's like, you know, like you, state is evil and like, you're not going to use it. And I'm not going to let you use it. Like it doesn't make your life hard. It just nudges you towards a more functional approach in kind of structuring your programs, destructuring your problems, if you will. Like the Che poster is no longer on the wall of Elixir. It's, it's just, it's a more grown up, I think, functional language that um, has a lot of that functional loveliness. Uh, as an old and grumpy programmer, I kind of wish it was st weirdly statically typed. I can't believe I'm saying that. There, there are, there is an effort to uh, add optional, uh, like static typing to it right now. That's not in the like main branch of the language yet, but I think it's something that is coming and being uh, treated very, uh, it's, I don't know, practically, academically, I don't know, some combination of that. Um, it's an interesting language. It's really cool. It feels a little bit like, you know what, I'm not even going to make the Ruby comparison. It is not like Ruby at all. But the feeling it gives me, like the language doesn't hate me and wants me to be happy, that feeling is kind of like what Ruby gave me or what writing Python sometimes makes me feel. It's fun to develop in. The ecosystem is quite good. And it is built on Erlang. It is It compiles down to Erlang bytecode. And Erlang is that language from the 80s that is definitely still around running unbelievably large and critical systems. And the cool thing about that language is that that language runtime is designed from the beginning to be distributed because of how telephone networks work and the fact that like one little bug can't crash the entire telephone network. That's how it was designed. And so in the same way that Go, the language makes, and I guess the runtime makes concurrency and parallelism, parallelism, sorry everyone, uh, makes that easy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that wrong another 10 times. In the same way that Go makes that easy, Erlang has a different, and maybe maybe I'm starting to prefer this model, I don't know, model for concurrency and parallelism. 
it's just battle tested. It's a clever way of doing parallelism and concurrency. I'm not going to get into the specifics here, but the cool thing is Go gives you, for example, a binary. You have a binary. Binaries are cool. Binaries are like easy to move around, you know, easy to pop onto a server and just run. Easy to build like a service file around so you can run it as a system service. They're, they're just easy to work with from an operational perspective. What Erlang gives you is a little bit more of a complex um, kind of runtime model. It, it gives you a runtime that is a service, but that can seamlessly interoperate with other nodes. So it's designed from the beginning to be distributed. In Go, you might write a distributed system and then run all of those nodes kind of yourself and hook them up to talk to each other. Uh, you get that kind of out of the box with Erlang. You can just add nodes, point them at each other, and then you have a giant distributed system. And that, what's really interesting about that is like, you can have parts of your code fail and the system is just fine. <laughs> this is really weird, but you sort of get a bit of a Kubernetes out of the box with Erlang. And Elixir, being a language that compiles down to Erlang bytecode, is gives you all of those advantages and all of those tools in your toolbox basically for free. And here, again, without getting into too much detail, the cool thing about this is that it's forcing me to think a little bit differently about how I actually design an application or a set of uh, kind of like services, right, that combine into a kind of application. Whereas in Go, Go lends itself to small services, network services, microservices even. And in Go, you might, you know, you might write a little Go thing. It's a stateless like application thing. And it just expects like for state, we're going to use like a Redis server for, I don't know, caching or all the magical operations that Redis gives you. So like in Go, you need to use a persistent kind of state store that is running as another service because a stateless application server could just be killed off and then you lose, you know, the, the Go map that you had in memory for caching and like that is very sad for everyone now, I don't know, something breaks because you were counting on that caching. Okay. In Elixir, my first instinct to be like, okay, well like what are we using as the cache here? That whole system design thing looks very different because in Elixir you would reach for uh, just more Elixir. <laughs> you just write another module and that's your cache. You know, using some of the concurrency and parallelism kind of primitives, you could basically write an Elixir module that acts as a cache and it's a total first, it's not a different application. You're not going, I mean, you're going over a network stack, but you're staying in application land to do that. You're not, not everything is being like serialized out of the language, chucked into like a TCP you know packet, sent to the Redis server, the Redis server sends something back that's being interpreted by a client library, you know, deserialized again, interpreted by a client library, and then turned into application structs uh, on the go end, and then then you can use it kind of natively. It's all just Elixir, which is kind of wild, and the runtime abstracts some of that away for you. So instead of using Redis, if you're just doing like caching, like you may still use Redis. I don't know. Redis does a lot of really cool stuff, but for just a simple use case like caching, which is most people's use case. You just write a Redis mod, uh, sorry, an Elixir module that does that. It just has a map that's like concurrency safe. It does updates. It has exposes functions that you can call from other modules to do that. And then it doesn't matter. You can scale those however you want. You can have a bunch of nodes where these services run, and your system has that same kind of like fault tolerance and modularization where you do have two separate entities that are like one's doing the caching for all the application modules and the application modules don't have to worry about ma like managing internal state 
are persisting it really. They just make calls just like you would to an external uh, service in another language. But again, it's all Elixir. I think that model is really cool. And again, like so many other things in our industry, we just hop from one hype train to another. And this shit's been around for 30 plus years. And it's like a really good idea that we are poorly reinventing over and over and hyping up and making foundations for with giant tech giants in it. And in the end, it's like the primitives for this have not just been around like theoretically, but they've been battle tested for years and years and years and years. Why doesn't this stuff get more kind of like airtime? I don't know, but I think mistakes like that, that our industry makes or like oversights that we have like that um, are a great opportunity for like technologists like you and me to take advantage of because um, as maybe you've heard, like Discord uses Elixir and um, other companies that are like working at kind of outrageous scale with very, very small dev and infrastructure teams. They're just, it's kind of a cheat code, right? It's like stuff the industry slept on or is sleeping on can allow you, can give you tremendous leverage against other companies that have, you know, a Kubernetes team, a platform team that's hundreds of people to run a big, giant, like annoying application that's split into a thousand services with a thousand different pieces of software running on a thousand different servers, each with their own kind of operational layers and specifics uh, and different things, you know, different things to do when they go down. Keeping as much of your application and, and as much of not just the business logic, but the the technical like model in the language as possible, I think is an interesting approach. It's a really interesting approach. Um, and I'm, I'd love to see where, where I can take that, what I can do with it. Um, I know there's a lot of teams using Elixir and the amazing Phoenix, um, web framework, very small teams are doing very big things with these technologies. Um, and like what technologist doesn't want to like amplify their power in a way their leverage with good tech? Like, isn't that kind of why we get into this? Like writing a script is better than, you know, a for loop's better than just like inlining something, some command a hundred times, right? It's like you, you you get higher leverage and kind of more power to, to do things and change things with less people, the more you do this. And I think there are so many opportunities in our industry to get leverage that other people just are not taking advantage of. And I think Elixir and Erlang might be one of those things. I'll keep you updated on my journey through that language and kind of what I'm doing with it and what I learn. The final word on this language that I wanted to cover because it leads into the next topic is what my approach has been to learn a new language at this point kind of in my, you know, I'm like 20 years into like doing tech, trying to do tech for money more or less <laughs> and, you know, taking it seriously as like something that I do. The interesting thing is I've learned a lot of programming languages by now, some of them poorly, uh, many of them poorly, some of them okay. I think after you learn three, four, five languages. And that doesn't mean you're an expert at all of them at the same time, but it's like, you know, you move from project to project, company to company, you pick up different ones, you forget a little bit of the old ones, but you you retain that kind of experience and, and overall feeling of like what was easy, what was hard to do in this language in this environment. And having, I think at that point, when you've learned three or four, you start to see, I think, more commonalities than differences what I started doing after three or four languages was focusing more on the process of learning a new language than like worrying about the specifics. 
So like generally the process for me was always like, well, you, you, you're shopping around, you see a language you're interested in, you look at the syntax first, right? And these are like the YouTube videos with like 10 bajillion views and no one's ever learned a programming language from, from them, right? It's like, here's all the syntax of this language. Like you might as well just like, I don't know, read the spec, I guess. I, I don't know. So you learn the basic syntax. Most language like starter guides on the official language site are far better than any, any YouTube video I've ever made about a language or anyone else has. For most people, I think video is a terrible way to absorb this. But what you need to do is basically like you pick a small problem. Usually at this point, I pick a problem I've solved in another language, like a toy problem. You know, everyone writes a guess the numbers game, right? That's like super basic. And then you're like, okay, well, like what's a web service maybe like in this language? And you write a little web service. And then you're like, okay, what's like a like a toy, you know, medium sized problem in this? You like compare it to some other stuff you've done. You know, I don't know, something that's has some concurrency in it maybe like I don't know a worker pool like th threads I don't know something like a little bit weirder harder asking a little bit more of, of that language and that kind of model of thinking one thing I like to write I don't know I've, I've written this a few times is like a, a procedural like adventure game good for string manipulation one thing I write is a link shortener like web service easy to write you know doesn't like really require anything it's not like it doesn't really have a a big graphical interface it's terrible programmer designed like buttons and form like raw html forms unstyled whatever doesn't matter throw bootstrap in there if you, you need css the kind of idea being it's like you kind of build build up a problem work on a real thing that is like has an actual like goal that like makes sense and isn't just like super basic so it's motivating and then try to be as idiomatic as possible in the language at first you'll write kind of the new language in the idioms of your old language, that's fine. You, you tend to like find the limitations of that and get better as you work on a real project. Then when you've got a real project uh, written, you know, think like 300 lines, 500 lines of code. It does a real thing. It's a web service. It shortens URLs. It does deals with like libraries and storage. At that point, I think you have, at that point, I'm sort of a beginner in that language. And then you can strike out and do like a larger project that's purely in that language. You're not just like copying an idea or something you've done before. You just pick a new direction, something you want to learn, something you want to make, something you want to build, and you use that new language for it. And it's probably going to suck and your code's going to be terrible and you're going to be really slow on some things, but like that's just the way to do it. So that's my general approach. One thing I have found, and this is the last topic for this uh, podcast episode, one thing I found is that the content that's out there, and certainly the content that's popular, is actually not particularly good for learning. It's great for making you feel like you're learning. Like when I watch, you know, a video that's like, I don't know, like the entire X language in like an hour, that's like awesome. I'm like, wow, I could bang out like a new, I could learn a new language in an hour. And at the end of the day, I haven't actually learned anything. I've seen like whatever the website would tell me, you know, like go play is more interactive and good than any YouTube video for learning the syntax of a new language. So there's a ton of that beginner content that I think is actually pretty low value overall, other than just exposing people to like, Hey, this language is out there and here's kind of what it looks like, which is fine. What people then do is like, they'll read a book. They'll, they'll usually get stuck somewhere. They'll, they, they, they'll start a book and not finish it. They'll start a tutorial project and all the codes kind of already written. So they don't really ever get stuck and learn new things and have to like, kind of forge new connections in their brain. You're just kind of like typing along with the examples. What I would like to do 
is create kind of that day two like content. And I would love your ideas, listeners, uh, for stuff that you find interesting. So I've mentioned a few things here. URL shortener, for example. Probably, it's probably safe to say none of us listening here will become billionaires off of the URL link shortening idea. So I'll save the business and I'll just like open source it, right? And like, maybe we can have that be a project that teaches us a language. I figured I would do this in Go. I'd probably do when I'm better at Elixir and can say that I write idiomatic Elixir probably in a year or so. I'll probably start doing them in Elixir too. But things like, and the way I would, I'm thinking of structuring these things is basically like I present like a real sort of like made up business problem, like business X wants to like shorten their links or whatever. And then you go from there, we kind of walk through like the design and at each step, it's like, how would you design this right now? And then you watch the next video and it's like, here's how I would design this. You kind of walk through it with me. Here's how I decompose the problem. What is this like map to in the language? Like, what do we need? Do we need concurrency? Do we need like libraries? Do we need like a database? Then kind of stubbing out the structure of the program. Like, okay, like this module will do this, you know, in Go that's packages, right? This package will do that. Um, here's the kind of interfaces, contracts between inside of our program. Here's the API externally. Does that seem good? And then we get down to building the parts. And that's where you see the actual language primitives being applied to to solve those like very those cut down to size problems, right? Like like it's like a a backlog item that the team has already gone over and it's like ready to be picked up, right? It's like well scoped uh, chunks of functionality that we can then write together. That's a much more realistic process. It's just much more realistic for how you would ever like build actual software, even if it's just you alone in your basement. And I think there's some projects that lend themselves, you know, these kind of like smallish projects lend themselves well to that. So I have a few ideas already, but I'd love to hear things that you think would be interesting to build that have just, just are intrinsically interesting enough to be enough motivation to get people to think through them, stick with them and finish a project that may with maybe, you know, it'll take an afternoon. It's maybe an hour or two of video. And the rest of the time is you kind of trying to make the next step yourself and then seeing what I came up with for the same uh, prompt. So these kinds of things that tie together a bunch of different skills and show you how to kind of exercise programming skills, some Linux skills, the kind of operationalizing of a program, like how would we actually get this into production? Like how would that work? Love to hear your ideas on stuff you would love to see me uh, do. Thanks for sticking with me. That's it for this episode and I will see y'all in the next one. Got a bunch of stuff planned and a bunch of guests lined up for the next few of these. So I'm excited uh, for those. Thanks for listening. And uh, remember to like do whatever you can do on these podcast apps to uh, like rate this podcast. That'd be cool if you enjoyed it. And uh, likewise, if you could leave a review, like a text review, I think that really helps podcasts. And now that I'm starting this up again, you know, if you remember, we used to have the Colonel Panic podcast, which actually got to like 10,000 listeners pretty regularly. I can't believe I dropped that. I'm so bad at like being a, a unicorn thought leader, you know? And I think the only thing I can ask for is uh, help me help me get this podcast out there because I'm terrible at marketing and I just have so much other stuff going on that I want to do this. I want to share this, but I'm just not, not going to not gonna hustle so hard that I'm going to like spend my entire day like branding and marketing this stuff and posting it in reddits and subreddits and whatever. So if you could do that for me, that'd be great. Anyway, appreciate you all. And uh, thanks for listening. See you in the next one. Peace.